Support for Industry Focus comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, work with one that has your best interests in mind. Use Rocket Mortgage for a transparent, trustworthy home loan process that's completely online at quickenloans.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm pre-recording today with Industry Focus Financials host Gabby LaPera in studio. Hi, Gabby. Hey! So, we don't actually know when this episode is going out, but we found an interesting topic and we wanted to explore it. And I'm not going to start with saying what today's date is because I just don't know what it is. But so, today's show hopefully will be really informative. It was inspired by a listener of the show whose name is Vince. He came to see us from San Diego. Uh, he was here for a cancer research conference and came all the way down to Full HQ, which is not actually in DC, it's in Alexandria. And so he came by and he was mentioning how much he enjoys John Maxfield, who is one of our financial analysts, history lessons on Gabby's show. And a few minutes later, we also ended up talking about this drug called thalidomide, which turns out has this very long and storied history. So, thank you to Vince for the idea for today, which is to basically combine those two interests of his, which were history and thalidomide, and tell this story. So, Gabby, what do you say? Let's do it. Yeah, definitely. I'm really excited to be here. Yes, I know how much you love being on the healthcare show. <laughs> I really love it. For listeners who don't know this, I love the healthcare show. And every time Christine lets me on, it's just a special treat for <laughs> well, me. I don't know for you, but <laughs> hopefully for everybody involved. I know it's very special to me as well. So um, I will let you kick it off then by starting the history wherever you deem appropriate. Um, okay. So today we're talking about a drug called thalidomide, just in case you hadn't caught it the first time. Um, a little bit of a primer on the history of the drug. So the drug was actually first developed in Germany um, by a company called Chemie Grumenthal. I'm so sorry, listeners. I had to turn to look at Christine because I forgot that I'm actually in the studio with someone, which is so rare. So yeah, the two of us of all of the five industry focus shows tend to kind of always be Skyping into somebody. So it's so, sort of nice to have someone sitting right next to me. It really is. So let me address the other person in the room, <laughs> as well as you listeners, wherever you are. Uh, so, thalidomide was first developed in Germany by a company called Chemi Grunenthal, and it was first marketed as Contragen. And it was originally used as an anti-anxiety medication, um, something to help promote sleep. And that was something that was really, really in demand in post-war Germany, as one might imagine. Um, so, eventually, its properties as an anti-emetic were recognized, and an anti-emetic is something that helps you not vomit. Um, Fancy word for not puking. Yes. <laughs> and so they figured this drug might be really useful in morning sickness. And so then a lot of pregnant women started taking it. Exactly. Um, actually, interestingly enough, um, there was kind of this idea back then that morning sickness was psychosomatic. So it was just in pregnant women's heads. Turns out that's definitely not true. <laughs> Don't annoy a pregnant person in your life by telling them it's all in their head. Uh, there's actually really good reasons for why pregnant people throw up. Um, which I don't know if you're interested in. <laughs> that seems tangential, but hey, listeners, if you're curious, Gabby will be happy to answer that question via email. Email us at industryfocus@fool.com. Perfect. Um, so they start giving this drug to pregnant women. Uh, it spread like wildfire to other countries like the UK and Spain. By 1960, the drug was being sold in 46 different countries under a variety of names. The problem with thalidomide is that they hadn't really done human drug testing. They hadn't done it in pregnant women at all. They um, hadn't even done it in pregnant animals, actually. Yeah, it, it it was a different time 
back then. And actually, as a result of this different time, we're in the time that we're, that we're in now. Um, but thalidomide has uh, uh, teratogenic effects, which basically means it can cross the placental barrier and cause birth defects. So, in 1956, the first known instance of a child being born with thalidomide-related drug uh, birth defects was born. Uh, this child was born with no ears. Interestingly, this was actually the daughter of an employee of the company that makes the drug. And so, that was the first case of what turned out to be a lot more to come. It was a huge problem. Um, it's estimated that around 24,000 babies were born with problems caused by thalidomide, and it's there's the potential that up to 123,000 babies were stillborn or miscarried due to thalidomide. Um, thalidomide has some pretty serious effects um, in terms of the, the birth defects that it causes. Uh, the one that's most recognizable is a defect called phocomelia um, that comes from Latin for seal, because the babies were being born basically without uh, most of them were being born without any long bones, and it can manifest in a variety of ways. So sometimes maybe they'd have a humerus in a hand, or um, the ulna in a hand, but like no other bones. Or maybe they'd have a femur, maybe they wouldn't, but they'd have like kind of flipper hands and flipper feet. Hence the word for seal in the name. Um, and it also comes with a variety of other side effects, um, including ear and eye problems, just like the baby that was born without ears, gastro disorders, underdeveloped lungs, defects in the kidney and genitalia, and neural defects. Right. So, this clearly was a hugely problematic drug. And before they quite realized the magnitude of the problem, let's pivot to the United States, where they were trying to get this drug approved for sale over in the U.S. Um, because things were pretty different, Europe versus the U.S., and they actually still are today. But uh, So, at, at the time, in the, 19, the year was 1960, there was a FDA employee named Dr. Frances Oldham Kelsey. And so, she ended up being the one tasked with more or less approving this drug. And she was very insistent that she wanted more information. She didn't think that the studies that were available were conclusive. She wanted to see more. And she got some pushback, but she really fought for this drug. And it ended up not being approved by the FDA. Yes. Um, so, originally, Kemi Grunenthal, so what they did was they would go to other countries and try and get partners to help them distribute the drugs. And so, they get to the United States and they talk to Smith Klein in French, which is now. GlaxoSmithKline. Um, and GlaxoSmithKline does human testing in pregnant people. Um, and we don't 100% know what the results of those trials were, but uh, SmithKline and French decided not to move forward with the drug. And so then Kemi Grunenthal moved over to another company called the William S. Merrill Company, which through some weird turn of events, eventually became Sanofi. It was like a bunch of mergers and acquisitions. But anyway, this is these are names that are still pretty prominent today. Definitely, but this was far before that, um, and that's when it got submitted to the FDA and Dr. Uh, Kelsey got involved with it. Um, she was pretty horrified, as Christine said, that a lot of the testing was done just in animals, and that a lot of the testing that they had done hadn't actually shown any of the effects that Kemi Grunenthal said that it had. Um, it, it seemed like Kemi Grunenthal was marketing it as a sleep aid, and even with higher rec than recommended doses, people weren't falling asleep. Yeah, and so interestingly, at the time with the FDA, you didn't actually need to prove that your drug was effective in order to get it out there on the market. All you needed to prove was that it was safe, which is kind of also questionable because this drug clearly wasn't safe. But 
at the time, that that's what the guidelines were. And because of Dr. Kelsey's insistence, the drug ended up being banned in 1962 worldwide because people were waking up to the fact that this is so dangerous. Yeah. So there's a couple things that played into that. So um, in November of 1960, um, two uh, uh, physicians in two very different parts of the world, Australia and Germany, kind of simultaneously recognized the effects that were going on. And this was around the same time that Dr. Francis Kelsey was just uh, sitting there going, like, I don't I don't trust this thing. Um, news about the the birth defects spread pretty quickly after that, and it started getting pulled. Um, but it would have been available in America if it hadn't been for Dr. Kelsey, right? And so she, her insistence also led to the passing of. I'm going to have trouble pronouncing this, the Kefauver-Harris Amendment, which is also known as the Drug Efficacy Amendment. I probably should have just gone with that. <laughs> and basically, that was the FDA saying that, yep, now you need to prove efficacy in addition to safety. And there are a whole other bunch of things that I can tell that you really want to share with our listeners that were involved with that amendment. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, actually, one of the things I wanted to point out was that this amendment um, passed in 1962, which was only two years after the whole scandal broke, which was, that's like basically super fast in Washington, D.C. time. FDA years, yep. (laughs) Um, But some of the other things that the Drug Efficacy Amendment, I'm not even going to try with the other name, uh, did was it made sure that study participants had to give informed consent. So people who were in the study had to know what could happen to them in the study, which was something that was not required before, which is crazy to researchers now. Um, the FDA also could set manufacturing standards and do regular inspections of drug production facilities. Again, something that wasn't there before. It also required advertising to disclose information about side effects. So when you're listening to the radio and someone's like giving you a drug name, and then at the end they're like may cause blah 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 blah. That's why <laughs> it's because of this act. Yeah, and when you look at the list of requirements that that this act you know enabled or required, it. Is kind of mind blowing that they weren't in existence before, and so I, I don't know. I, I find it kind of inspirational to think that this one woman was basically the person that spearheaded a lot of the the ways that the FDA is the way that it is today. Yeah, um, I think also one other thing that the that the amendment did that I think is pretty good, and I think everyone would agree is great, is that it stopped companies from marketing cheap generics as brand new brand name drugs. So they would be like. Yes, this pill, which has never existed before, can totally treat you way better than the generic that already exists. And they can't do that anymore. They have to say that it's the same thing. Well, that's also good. Yeah. Support for Industry Focus comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, it's important to work with someone you can trust and who has your best interests in mind. With Rocket Mortgage, you'll get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Don't waste time searching through stacks of paperwork. With Rocket Mortgage, you can securely share your financial information to get a mortgage approval in minutes. You can even adjust the rate and length of your loan in real time to make sure you get the mortgage solution that's right for you. Whether you're looking to buy a home or refinance your existing mortgage, you can lift the burden of getting a home loan with Rocket Mortgage. Skip the bank, skip the waiting, and go completely online at quickenloans.com fool. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org, number 3030. Thanks again to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans for supporting our podcast. 
So we have talked a bunch about thalidomide's past, and I believe we've gotten up to about 1962. But one of the most interesting parts of this story is that it doesn't end in the 1960s. There is a pretty big turn of events that brings this drug to become a very important part of the product line of a company that we talk about all the time on the healthcare show, and that company is Celgene. So how did that come about? Where do we begin? So post. 1962, obviously not a lot of companies were interested in doing anything with thalidomide. Um, and that makes sense. It, it turns out that we don't exactly 100% know how thalidomide works, um, but it does turn out to work for a few different things. Right. So, uh, it, the drug we know is a something called a TNF inhibitor, which is actually what Humira is, which is the best-selling drug in the world, one that I'm sure that we've mentioned on this show. And basically, that it's a, an anti-inflammatory sort of property. Um, there are other things that go on with uh, with the drug that we know of. For example, um, we know that it has certain effects in blood vessel creation. Yeah. It's an anti-angiogenic, which means that it inhibits the formation of new blood vessels. Right, angios in blood, genesis as in like the first growth, angiogenic. Yeah, and that's huge with um, with tumors and cancer because tumors are living things basically, and they still need what they they do is they hijack the body's supply of other things, so like blood and nutrients or whatever to help feed itself to grow. So if you help cut off that blood supply to the tumor, you can you can kind of starve it out. Right. So this drug, it turns out, kind of strangles the process by which tumors will spur the creation of blood vessels in order to get oxygen and nutrients. And so by strangling that process, you can starve the tumor. Absolutely. Um, do you also want to talk about leprosy, or should we continue with cancer? Uh, well, now that you mentioned it, let's let's talk about leprosy. Okay. That, that's chronologically first, I think. Yeah. So leprosy was actually the first. Um, legitimate use that they found for thalidomide, as opposed to any of the other uses that it was actually being marketed for before. For specifically one particular effect of leprosy, which is ENL, for the acronym. Yeah, it's it's a really painful complication that can happen with leprosy, which is like a skin thing. Um, and it's actually still fairly regularly distributed in Brazil. Um, and the FDA actually gave Celgene approval to use it for ENL in 1998, but it is no longer the preferred treatment for that because there's a much safer drug on the market. And in places where it's still being used to treat ENL, they're still seeing incidents of um, birth defects increased in that population. Right. So even though we have found effective uses for thalidomide, as a pregnant woman, you still shouldn't take it. Yes. Actually, if you go to the thalidomide website, there's a huge box at the top with like a little skull and crossbones and a warning that's like, do not take this if you're pregnant. Right. So you mentioned thalidomide. That is now the brand name for thalidomide, which was approved in 2004 by the FDA for treatment of multiple myeloma, which brings us right back to blood cancer. Yes. So, uh, this was a disease that had a very poor prognosis prior to approval of the drug. And uh, Celgene actually had its first profitable year basically because of thalamid, which ironically was kind of being marketed, maybe not marketed, but it, it, most of the sales of this drug were off label, meaning not for the approved indication. And there has been a good bit of uh, controversy over whether or not they were marketing it off label, but that also seems kind of tangential to this topic. <laughs> but uh, so at first, uh, ENL was the only approved indication, and Celgene got it approved for multiple myeloma. 
And that basically spurred this franchise that, to this day, drives Celgene's profitability. Definitely. Um, I believe that the Lenamid peaked in 2008 with around $500 million in sales, right? Which is not that much, realistically. Um, Considering that you look at its successors, so Revlimid, which is the big cell gene drug, that is a successor to Thalamid. Um, it's kind of the next generation version of it, and so uh, it's technically an analog, by the way. That means a like similar chemical structure, but slightly different properties. Um, so you have Thalamid, which transformed and updated into Revlimid, which sold $7 billion worth in 2016. Um, you also have Pomalus, which is kind of like another next generation version of it. And that one sold $1.3 billion in 2016. So you compare those numbers to Thalamid's peak sales, and you can tell that really the important drugs for Celgene are these newer, updated versions of it. But it was really mind blowing for me to look into the history of where these drugs started because they are the most important drugs for one of the most important healthcare companies and they have this entire storied history. Definitely. And without the history of thalidomide, the drug regulation environment in America would be totally different than it is now. Yeah, I mean, when I look at the story and I say, okay, well, what what can we learn as people or investors or you know, we live in DC, so we hear a lot about political policy and the FDA. And I think you're completely right, where this story shows us a lot about why the FDA is the way that it is. And I think you're hearing a lot of rhetoric now about how the FDA is too strict and it's this huge regulatory mess and we should let more drugs be approved because they save lives and let's not get bogged down in paperwork. And I think this story kind of reinforces one the other side of that argument, where we are weird. We I'm not in the FDA. The <laughs> FDA's job is to protect people, and so to require safety studies as well as efficacy studies, and to get informed consent, and all of these things that came about as a result of thalidomide, I would say are undisputably good things. Definitely, I I agree with you. Um, I can't imagine what it would be like if someone told me that this drug would definitely help me with one thing and then created all these unwanted consequences and things that I couldn't be informed about ahead of time because the companies didn't do their due diligence. Um, and One of the things that actually came out in, in the history of this whole discovery is that Kemi Grunenthal and a lot of the com- companies that it partnered with really, really wanted to hide that this was happening. Yeah, which is pretty frightening. Yeah, it, it, it is. Um, and it's you know, I, that's. I know that I am definitely a very risk-averse person, which is why I think that it's great that the FDA requires all of these things, and it does take so long for drugs to come to market. Yeah, and I'm not going to say that the FDA is perfectly efficient. No, and certainly this passage of the drug efficacy amem- amendment is not the 100% foundation of every rule the FDA has. It's just one tiny subsection of it, and I'm sure there are things that could be trimmed in the regulatory process, but I think overall, when I hear this story, to me, it sounds like one of good progress. Yeah, definitely. I I agree. And are there ways to to speed the the safety process and all that? Probably. But um, I think, in general, it's, it's better to be safe than sorry. Yeah, well said. So 
I think that about wraps up the episode for today. Uh, hopefully our listeners enjoyed somewhat of a, a different type of episode where we walk back through history and try to explain the way the world is today, or at least the FDA, based <laughs> on our history lessons. Gabby, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. For Gabby LaPera, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Thank you.